house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Thank you, Miss Holloway. Good night. Come into my office. Finally. This isn't just about typos. It's your behavior. What about my behavior? It's very bad. I'm very fond of you. I'm your secretary. If we can fully experience pain, we can live a more meaningful life. <laughs> He's the best. Painting? Something sexual. There are other ways to show your feelings. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast sending the bottom eyes emoji to Eli Wallach. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my redacted, redacted, redacted Chris File. Hello, Chris. <laughs> I couldn't find a way to to make it thematic to this movie without making it thoroughly disgusting. So. I mean, it still could be. Listeners, what were those three redacteds? Comment below. <laughs> Yeah, this is a uh this is a difficult movie to talk about without getting fully into some real intimate <laughs> topics. Listen, so listeners, if you have us playing on like a sound system while your children wander the house, maybe maybe put some headphones in for this. Yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This could be this could be one maybe if you're listening in the car on like a long trip with the kids or whatever. Just like just go back and listen to Hustlers again. Hustlers will be much more wholesome, I think, than the uh, than than our secretary episode. Not that we're gonna like really like get into like. The nitty gritty, but like, there's, you know, I mean, like, and we're not like a sex shaming here at all, but like, no, yeah, I'm... this is a, a, I, okay, maybe we need to keep a tally. Listeners can keep a tally for the amount of times we say spank and all of its, um, not right. derivatives, but like all of that. Anytime that we say spank, yeah, I had not seen Secretary before watching this in the twenty some years since it premiered. It was always a movie that was sort of on my list. I there was no particular reason why I avoided this movie. This is just like one of those movies that like can't see everything. And so um I was excited to finally get the chance and the excuse to see it to talk about it with you. And I had assumed that like well, obviously Chris has seen Secretary because like you've seen I think just on balance more movies than I have. But you haven't. This is the first time No, this is my first time too. I think this is one of the ones that slipped through the cracks that because I was in high school when this movie came out, and like this one, when I'm like, I want to see Secretary, I think I got a firm no. Um, and then I just like never watched it in college, and I've it's been super available lately. Like it's always on and off HBO Max, it seems like. But um, and I've wanted to watch this, but ever since we watched this, since we've done this podcast, this is one of those movies that I'm like, well, I can't watch this until we. Right. Finally, do an episode on it. But here it's we are. Also, yeah, here we are. Here we are. Here we are with day. Maggie Gyllenhaal in the Oscar race for a very different reason. 
That's right. Yeah, we wanted to talk about this because it was a nice little tie-in to the fact that Maggie Gyllenhaal is very much in the Oscar race with The Lost Daughter. I think at this point, we're kind of expecting a screenplay nomination for Maggie and for The Lost Daughter to show up maybe in a few other categories, but seems to be sort of scrambling on the outskirts of stuff like Best Picture and Best Director. Yeah, I think people are underestimating its chances getting nominated in Best Picture. So do you feel like it does have a strong chance? I mean, be, be being nominee? that there is exactly 10 that will happen, I think like right. there's a number of movies that have more chance than, uh, you know, maybe people are thinking about. But like this is a movie that keeps coming up again and again, I think, because, you know, Maggie kind of has this triumphant directorial debut that's getting really embraced. Uh, I do think it has a decent shot. And it did get a Golden Globe nomination for Best Picture, right? Yes, but like, I, right. I, I feel like this even what more so, saying. it's like, uh, you know, what does that mean? Asterix. What does that, that mean? This the Globes year? mean nothing. But exactly. like, I think anecdotally, the way that this movie is continually being talked about, I think the way that like, in terms of a contender for Netflix and how Netflix was maybe a little unprepared for it to be one of their strongest chances outside of Power of the Dog is really interesting. What's funny is, I feel like now I'm seeing a lot more polarization, perhaps. I've seen some people being like, Lost Daughter is like the best movie of the year, or like one of like the top five movies of the year. I'm seeing also other people being like, why is Netflix pushing The Lost Daughter at the expense of something like Passing? And... I'm. I just feel like people are sort of like going to their camps pretty a little divisive bit too. I mean, the thing is, what I think people are underestimating. Like, I look at that Critics' Choice Best Picture lineup, and I'm like, huh? Okay. Wait. I you, seeing movies that I wouldn't expect to be there, but because of like preferential ballots and such, like. The, you have to look and see like where are the passion votes for some movies right now and i think the lost daughter is a movie that is going to have a sizable amount of passion votes behind it that it could so, be best picture nominee just to because you mentioned the the critics choice uh, best picture nominees so that i just pulled it up just so our listeners can uh, be on the same page with us that list is belfast coda don't look up dune king richard licorice pizza nightmare alley the Power of the Dog, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. Of those, I feel like Don't Look Up got that nomination and got those votes before the sort of the critical masses weighed in quite negatively on that show. Yeah. Or on that on that film. So I think that one is, if you're going to talk about like what from this lineup might miss uh, at, at the Oscars, that one. And then... I could just be very wrong. You like Nightmare Alley more than I do. So, like, maybe I just am clouded by the fact that I didn't care for it. And maybe the Academy will see something with production values like that and a director who they very recently gave Best Director and Best Picture and will be more amenable to something like that. I could see, though, Nightmare Alley getting left off. And we do forget the fact that... And I know another movie that you and I feel very differently on is being the Ricardos, but like I really feel like the Academy is going to go for that. Yeah, like, I think beyond that's the fact that I nominee. like it, beyond the fact that I like it, I think that's a Best Picture nominee. So now we're talking about maybe one ish slot 
I also don't know if Tick Tick Boom is going to make it. To yeah, Tick Tick Boom is either. not going to be a Best Picture nominee, even though I think it maybe should be. Um, I mean, Coda is a giant question mark. I think Coda's making it. I think Coda is going to be a nominee. I think it's getting more and more towards. It's getting way more attention as like the season has gone on. Like yes. it has yes. more attention now than when it first showed up in Apple and in theaters. Like which is what which is a big indicator. I think I think that's yeah. what needed to happen for that movie. So I think all the things that need to happen. It's also now has a solid contender for an acting nomination, which it mm-hmm. maybe didn't uh, six months ago. So I think. I think Coda, I would give a much better chance than some than things like Don't Look Up, uh, Nightmare Alley, Tick, Tick, Boom, that kind of a thing. Um, but th- these are the movies that Lost Daughter is kind of in competition with to try and crack this. I guess Spencer is also part of that uh, group, but I don't I see don't Spencer as getting a think, Best Picture nominee. No, 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 no. I think people yeah. were way... Over, um, I feel like we talked about this in our mailbag, but like people from the jump with Spencer were underestimating how strange that movie is, yeah, um, and how that would go over with the Academy. Um, Again, it's the same trajectory as Jackie. It's really funny. Like it's it's almost to a note the same. Jackie trajectory is like as monumentally Jackie. better than Spencer. I I don't know if I would say the word monumentally, but I would agree that Jackie is better. Um, I think they are the same kind of divisive, though. In fact, I think yes. Jackie might be stranger. I think Spencer is a more straightforwardly told movie. I feel like, I kind of feel like the opposite is true. I feel like the people who hated Jackie and were like, why is this movie so weird? I felt like that's the movie I watched when I like when I watched Spencer. Granted, I, I liked Spencer just fine, but like, I was like, I well, thought this Spencer is was fascinating. One. I thought Spencer was full of things that I really liked and I really didn't and I was really confused by. And sometimes it felt almost like embarrassingly yearning for like poetic, you know, moments. And sometimes it had something that really landed with me. And it's a really, it's a grab bag of a movie, which I will take over something that I find a little bit more flatly okay. But... It's also not the not a great recipe for, you know, getting nominated for awards and things like that. So anyway. I want to take this back to something you said because we can also bring it back to Maggie Gyllenhaal and The Lost Daughter a little bit. Yes. You kind of were like, I don't think she's going to be a Best Director thing, which I think that's what the Globe nomination is, not Best Picture. She got a Director nomination. So she got a lone Director nomination at the Globes? That's so rare. That's so funny. Right. She pulled a David Lynch. Um but I think that's true. I didn't pay too much attention to the Globe nominations. Um, I, I it was so funny that morning nomination. because the no- morning of the Golden Globe nominations, everybody in the same breath was like, this doesn't matter. And yet we're, we were all talking about it because how do you turn that switch off? You know what I mean? I, we were still talking about who got nominated and who didn't get nominated and and whatever. And we were keeping this... You're right, by the way, it did not get a Best uh, Picture nominee a nomination. It did get Best Director. That's so weird. Um, they That that feels like not a very Golden Globes thing. But anyway, um, we were still talking about it. It's, 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 so, it's so strange. We had all... The tone last year, in the last year, when we had all decided 
seemingly collectively that we were done with the Golden Globes and we didn't need the Golden Globes. There was this tone of just like, finally, we are free of the Golden Globes and we never have to talk about this sham of an awards. And everybody was talking like they were being fucking held hostage by the Hollywood foreign press because they had a TV show. And now that they don't have a TV and show, nobody's showing up. talking about it. And all those people kept still fucking talking about it. So it's just like... What's- <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Now that the gun is like, is this like some old like phantom Stockholm syndrome or something like that? Like it was, I, I will, it's going to take me a while to stop being sort of feel like a lot of people were being, if not hypocritical, like a little bit performative about uh, rubbernecking on a car crash, type something like that. I think it's, it's wild to me that, and I know that there were underlying conditions and the, 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 Field was ripe for a takedown of this of this show, right? But it's weird to me that the proximate cause came from snubs that happened in the Golden Globes Television Awards, which don't fucking matter. Like, <laughs> so don't fucking matter. And every year I would try to tell people, stop complaining about snubs in the Golden Globes Television categories. There is no such thing. They are just, they are random and weird and, like bonus content on a dvd like the actual thing that matters is the movie awards for as much as it's a weird thing that they do matter in as much as the golden globes made a difference they did with movie awards whether we thought it shouldn't have been or not but i don't know oh my we've God. talked I'm about gonna go this. to the fucking i uh, my my stance on this is firmly the table was set against the Golden Globes because the stars didn't want to do it anymore and they were in a position to say no, no more, and that's why it's over. Um, you, I, I don't entirely disagree with you, but I think when you say the stars didn't want to do it anymore, I think that's... I don't think that's true for everybody. I think if you look at this year, I think somebody like Rachel Ziegler would very much like to be doing the Golden Globes this year. Somebody like... Uh, Anthony Ramos, somebody like Alana Haim, like people who are like on the, like would very much like an Oscar nomination because of what it will do for their career. And also maybe they just want an Oscar nomination because who wouldn't? Right. They're not going to be able to get the benefit that the Golden Globes would offer them by getting the nominations that they Certain got. Certain off-ramps on this freeway are no longer um, options on your route right. to... And I think one of those people is Maggie Gyllenhaal. Like, I think it would matter to an Oscar voter to have watched the Golden Globes and to see her name mentioned in the same recitation as Jane Campion and Steven Spielberg and Denny Van Leeuw. You know what I mean? Well, this is this is what I was going to say about, like, you'd mentioned earlier that you don't think she's going to really be in the director conversation. I think people I, are... I think that's what I'm hearing. I'm not maybe I I'm yes, saying I'm that's not pinning more of, this on you because I've heard yeah. this a lot and I think that I don't want to go so far as to say that's naive but I think it is very interesting that people are overlooking the type of consideration that are given a lot of actors turned directors in Hollywood um and like some of those people have made good movies bad movies and gotten Oscar nominations for it but like even though, like, Lost Art is not going to be in my top ten or anything, but, like, it is a distinct directorial vision. And I do think the fact that Maggie Gyllenhaal is famous for being an actress, she's an Oscar-nominated actress, and right. makes this movie, people are treating it like it's out of left field for her to make this movie, and it's successful, and people like it, 
That's what's keeping the movie in the conversation. So I do actually think that there's a chance for her to get a director nomination. I think because, like, something like Denis Villeneuve getting a Best Director nomination looking more likely is probably, you know, limiting that. But, like... Yeah. Of course the director's branch loves rewarding actor-turned-directors. Like... I, I do think this is a year where we're looking at a lot of Academy faves being in positions that could end up acing her out. So Spielberg, obviously huge Academy fave. Denis Villeneuve is coming off of, uh, well, not coming off of, I guess, because there was Blade Runner in between, but like he's a former Oscar nominee, and he is directing the kind of movie that lately has got directors nominated, something big, something massive, something... If there's um, some contingent in the Academy, like we saw with people having hesitancy to Roma and continually doing so, if they're wanting to reward something that is a theatrical experience or, And that he actually... Yeah, and he actually, like, vocally... Yeah, he vocally advocated for films and theaters, which I think... Yes. Um, but, like, Paul Thomas Anderson is a huge Academy fave. Um, Jane Campion is a former uh, nominee and Best Director. And obviously, I think don't I don't think any of us think Campion is in any way vulnerable. Um, Branna is not only directing a movie that is playing very well with Academy audiences, but, like, is also an old Academy fave of, like, your. And it's just, it's a lot of competition. I, I, it's, I'm, I, I'm not saying she's guaranteed to get nominated. I think that she deserves more consideration, not just for like yes. what she pulls yes. off with the movie, but because of Oscar history. Like, yes, it, it feels like she's getting brushed aside for something that, you know, like Kenneth Branagh is being, you know, sure. Taken for granted about, you know, like I get that. I get that. Um, and you know, I love Maggie Gyllenhaal. I like. I want all the success for her. But so let's let's steer back then into Secretary, which was the movie that put her on the map. There were some people who knew who she was, obviously. Um, before that, after we get through the plot description, we'll sort of we'll give you the we'll go through the Maggie Gyllenhaal story. Um, but this was undoubtedly the movie that broke her out into the realm of. Serious actress who we need to, you know, pay attention to, like next generation Sundance sensation kind of a thing. And she doesn't make the best. She's she's her film's only real chance for an Oscar nomination that year uh, in Best Actress. She sort of lingers on the outskirts of what ends up being a pretty solid six people for five spots race and she's in like seventh and mm-hmm. so she's there no she's in the con she's in the conversation that whole year but at some point she was sort of relegated to that like also a possibility you know paragraph that's like maggie gyllenhaal we'll talk about isabel Huppert in uh in the piano teacher that year was sort of in that same paragraph right and the way that uh these movies are in somewhat of a dialogue together is very fascinating to me so we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about so let's get to it first chris i am going to task you with a 60 second plot description of our fair uh, movie secretary and good movie pulling up my stopwatch but before we do 
I'm going to give the rundown. We are talking about the 2002 film Secretary, directed by Stephen Chainberg, written by Aaron Cressida Wilson. We'll get into it. This is our weirdly third Aaron Cressida Wilson movie that we've been talking about. Uh, based on the short story of the same name by Mary Gateskill, starring Maggie Gyllenhaal, James Spader, Jeremy Davies, Leslie Ann Warren, Stephen McCaddy, Patrick Bacow, Amy Locaine... Queen Amy Locaine of, uh, if you remember, uh, <laughs> Crybaby and or the first season of Melrose Place. Um, Jessica Tuck is also in this movie. If you are a soap opera fan, um, Jessica Tuck is a name you maybe know. This movie premiered uh, at the Sundance Film Festival on January 11th, 2002. It also then, several months later, played the Toronto Film Festival on September 6th, 2002, before opening and limited release uh, on September 20th, 2002. Chris, I've got my stopwatch ready. Cool. Are you ready to give a 60-second description of the film Secretary? Are you going to uh, punish me if I don't get it? Okay, see, this is what I was worried about, Chris. This is the temptation that we're both going to get into throughout this episode. All right. Um, listen, you don't know. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know. Oh, that, in, that's, in that's the tension, is that I, I don't that's know what's coming. Okay, okay. Right. All right. And begin. All right, Secretary opens on Lee, a young woman who's getting released from an institution and returning to her contentious family. She has lots of issues with self-harm. Despite having no skills, she applies to be a secretary for a lawyer named Mr. Gray. Gray hires her and quickly proves to be very cold and demanding, but uh, her submissive response to his demands turns him on and uh, his dominance turns her on, and they both realize that the other is turned on. But uh, Gray discovers that she self-harms and demands that she never do so again. And then they start a more overtly BDSM kind of arrangement with uh, Gray as the dom and Lee as the sub. Uh, Gray's uh, has like really uncomfortable with the amount of vulnerability he starts showing her so he forces himself to end the arrangement and he fires Lee who's devastated and then agrees to marry this dweeb that she's been dating but then she shows up in her wedding dress and Lee professes uh, her love for him uh, and then he agrees uh, to uh, she agrees to a test and then he uh, forces her to wear the dress for sitting for a while but then he returns and then they uh, he tenderly cares for her and they live happily ever after in spanktrimony you've you've long gone past time but I wanted to hear I wanted to hear you oh damn yes um, I'm glad you, we got to got to the word spanktrimony, though I would have hated to have cut you off before that point. Um, yeah, what a sweet movie. <laughs> what if what? What a sweet movie. It's very tender, ultimately. Okay, not to like reduce this to like thumbs up, thumbs down, but like where were you on Secretary? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh, thumbs up. Interesting. I don't know if I would necessarily say I was thumbs up on this movie. It's it's a dated movie. I think like. There's this weird undercurrent I wasn't expecting that's like very Sundancey. It's very Sundancey. It's I was very Sundancey. It like yes. gets to the edge of being like quirky and quaint, but I don't think fully goes there. So when we say something like Sundancey, though, I think it's probably valuable to sort of describe what we're saying because it, I don't know necessarily if we're maybe even saying the same thing. And I think. When people describe something as being very Sundance, there are a few things that I think they're maybe talking about. Um, I, the Sundanceiness that I find in this movie is a lot of, especially early 2000 Sundance or like late 98. This reminded me a little bit of this was a movie that felt like it had seen the opposite of sex. And this had, it was a movie that had seen like a lot of those sort of like, um, like late '90s John Waters movies. I and thought you were going to say that this was a movie that seemed like a Miranda July movie. 
Oh, I don't know if I necessarily saw that, but now that you say that, um, I figured I, I think when you didn't like point. this, I was like, that's why Joe doesn't like it. I came around to it more than I was going to. It really put itself behind the eight ball with me. I really did not. I this is not the kind of movie that I do super well with, where it it sort of front loads these kind of taboo subjects, and to me, asks for a lot of credit just for being about what it's about. And to Mm. me, the way that it framed her self-harm at the beginning and then kind of connected that to the BDSM later on in the movie. And to me, like, the revelation when she pulls out her box and it's sort of, you have these, like, harsh close-ups on like all of the all of her cutting instruments and it felt a little like ooh, like we're gonna we're breaking taboos now we're gonna be you know showing somebody going through and she's cutting herself and it felt a little um glib on that subject it's definitely dated i'm not sure if I agree on the whole like self-awareness about the taboo on a certain level, I feel like the movie's kind of offhand about some of its taboo things as much as like this kind of dark comedy in the early two thousands would be. Yeah. I mean, again, I sort of go back to the fact that like this just, I do I just, I don't do super well with these movies where uh, I'm, I'm going to have a very hard time articulating myself, I think with this movie, because ultimately what I don't want to do is see this movie and just be like, well, that was unpleasant to watch. And so I didn't watch, I didn't, you know, like it. And of course with a dark comedy like this, there is a challenge inherent in the movie of we are going to make you, fall in love with this sort of unpleasant love between this guy who like makes this woman piss herself at his desk in her wedding dress to show her devotion to him. And for us at the end to be like, guys, that's real love, you know, kind of thing. But I think it's, it's, there's more going on than that, but like, okay. I agree. That's why I'm saying I don't want to, I don't want to reduce. Right. 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 And yet, I do feel like there is a there is a part of this film as it is written and directed that puts a lot of onus on that. Okay. Are you saying you also think like the darker subject matter is handled inappropriately or like disrespectfully? I don't know if I would say No, I don't know if I would say that. I don't, especially... Because I had a complicated relationship with that, where I'm, like, sitting with it, and I'm like, okay, but on a certain level, is it being irresponsible with some of the, like, self-harm stuff? And I'm not sure that I think it is. I that's where I came the closest. I think the certainly not by, like, a 2002 standard. I think maybe, like, this movie wouldn't, like, 100% fly today, and, like, could do some stuff better but like it just feels to me a little again proud of itself and like for being for talking about this girl cutting herself in this darkly comedic tone 
And I feel like you got to do that really well. I think you got to do that really precisely. And I think Maggie Gyllenhaal is doing an incredible job with that. But the tone... Yeah, the movie has the performance to thank, I think, for a lot of what it yeah. does pull off. But... I don't know. And again, I am, you know, very willing to let other people sort of speak from experience. And maybe people who have more of an experience in, like, mental health fields or, you know, have experience with with some of the issues that get talked about in the movie, maybe they see the movie and it's refreshing for them for mm-hmm. it to feel a little less uh, heavy-handed or whatever. And I am absolutely willing to allow for that. This is why, again, I I don't do super well with a movie like this because I generally don't want to make proclamations about things like, this was a movie about a subject matter that made me uncomfortable more so the self harm than the than the dom sub stuff the dom sub right. stuff like i'm a person living in 2021 like i you know <laughs> well the dom sub stuff i think it pulls off really well and does like i don't want to say humanize to suggest that like you know but like it, did, it, it could very easily right. be like this you know spectacle like dehumanizing like well it know, does begin that way I think fa- the fact that it starts with her, a flash forward to her, you know, in with the the bar along her arms and like carrying the the letter, right, like it knows in her that you're going to be shocked, right? And then it's just like let's you know now we'll rewind and and explain how this came to be. And so there is there. I think the movie is depending on a level of shock in their audience, and I think that's the Sundanciness that I keep coming back to is. Uh, you know, bet you didn't think you would be watching this on a, you know, Sunday afternoon in the mountains. And <laughs> um, I don't know. There was I a little... I do think that the BDSM, like, relationship, it does a good job of, like, talking on a human level about how that relation, a relationship such as that could be fulfilling, you know, all parts involved, um, everybody on a consent level with the arrangement, and it'd be a fulfilling relationship for somebody um, in a way that didn't feel instructive. Like, I didn't feel like, you know, (laughs) not to say, like, it felt like it didn't feel like an issue movie where it was like, you know, people who like this can be people too. No, I didn't feel like it was like that, but it did, you know paint a good picture of how that can work for the good of someone. I also think I end up liking this movie a lot more if any of the other characters who are not uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader are written with any kind of depth or interest. I agree. I don't know how you waste Leslie and Warren in a movie, but it's (laughs) a real bummer that that character just really amounts to nothing. They have, she's got these sisters and her father is an alcoholic. And even Jeremy Davies, I think comes the closest to being an actual character. Oh, because he's Jeremy Davies. Because he's Jeremy Davies. But I think that this is a movie that really underwrites all of its other characters to the to the detriment of the movie. Because even though this is mostly a two-hander, I think if you're going to be that sort of shallow in all these other characters, then don't introduce them. She didn't Well, yeah, sisters. I think it should either be more of a two-hander or the other characters should be written better. Right, exactly. That's exactly my thing. And so that kind of soured me a little bit on it. And I didn't... I didn't hate this movie. I think by the end it was a stronger movie than I was 
waiting for it. But I, I think the fact that this movie boiled down to Maggie Gyllenhaal's performance as a contender and nothing else as a contender I, felt right to me. Right. Because like, I do think so much of the success of the movie is placed on her shoulders. I do also think Spader is really good in this movie too. I mean, like it's a Spader we're very familiar with. It's like, it makes complete sense that James Spader was cast in this role. Um, like I, I, it outright, uh, you know, recalls Crash at one point, the shot where, you know, he can see her, like, band-aids on the back of her leg is very much the Rosanna Arquette vagina leg shot in Crash. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but you are entirely right. Um, it's funny to think of, we, we don't think of James Spader in this mode anymore, and weirdly, I feel like Secretary was kind of the bookend of this sort of version of James Spader. It's interesting. He didn't make very many movies at all after this one. Like, between Secretary and then Lincoln, which is ten years later, he only makes four movies, and you have not heard of a single one of them. Um, they're titles like Shadow of Fear, Alien Hunter, Eyewitness. Like, these are, like, direct-to-cable uh, movies. Are direct to direct to video movies, and I think he did ended up doing a lot of television after this, which like you know good for him. But Secretary comes at the end of an era where people do kind of forget this like post less than zero, post Pretty in Pink era where James Spader was doing a lot of like erotic thriller stuff. Mm-hmm. And, or these sort of, like, dark roles. And, like, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is obviously the most prominent when you talk about, like, uh, indie film. Like, it's such an important movie in the history of indie film. But, like, there's stuff like Bad Influence, the Curtis Hansen movie, Bad Influence, where he's uh, sort of on the... I'm Again, this he is one of the great blockbuster video uh, video cover... Uh, actors yeah, of where all he's time. like making out with somebody on the cover. Bad influence. He's sort of like embracing this woman in a backless garment. Uh, White Palace, the movie he's in with Susan Sarandon, sure. where like the the famously like burned into my brain from blockbuster video is the video cover where he's like kissing her decolletage and she's sort of like <clears throat> excuse me and she's sort of uh, head back in in ecstasy. Never has experienced anything more pleasurable than, you know, James Spader kissing her sternum. Right. There's a there's a video box cover of a movie called Dream Lover, uh, with him and Manchin Amick from um Twin Peaks. Um and then as you mentioned, Crash is Masterpiece masterpiece of this exact kind of movie though it's like it takes the idea of an erotic thriller and it's just like but what about also automobile crashes what about (laughs) what about deep wounds you know and and that kind of all went away in the 2000s and secretary was almost like a career achievement award for james spader where being like to cap this era of your career where you just did so many of these uh erotic thrillers we are going to have you play, like, we're going to have your age be kind of important in this movie. He's not playing an old man, but I think the age difference between him and Maggie Gyllenhaal is a significant part of this movie. And it's also wild to me that it's, he's Mr. Gray, which 
I don't okay. think Fifty Talk Shades of, of Grey is an homage to that because Fifty Shades of Grey is about fucking Twilight. <laughs> so, but it's definitely kind of a crazy she like watched Secretary on Twi- on not on Twilight. She definitely watched it on like Showtime or the Sundance Channel. But and... I feel like it was a subconscious thing at best because I don't think. I don't think in any of the stuff we heard about Fifty Shades of Grey. That series started as outright narrative theft. Like, she does not have new ideas. It Right, this what I'm is saying a better is, movie about BDSM relationships than anything in Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't disagree with you. Although Fifty Shades of Grey at least gives you um, supporting characters who are off the chain. Like, at least, like, the what <laughs> what Fifty Shades does with Marsha Gay Harden is what I wanted a little bit for Leslie Ann Warren. Just that kind of consideration. Right, 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 right. So um, what you're saying is Secretary needed Rita Ora. I mean, every movie kind of needs Rita Ora, but yes, yes. Um, how old would have Rita Ora even been in 2002? Oh, just like, no. just like school age Rita Ora, just like sort of like traipsing through a scene and just sort of like totally unbothered and and just like who is that little girl? She's like she will one day grow up to be Rita Ora, and you're like who? And you're like exactly. It's like a, um, a cute little girl wandering through the street through a scene that's like I actually have a really big hit in Japan. <laughs> And she's like, who? And she's like, never mind. Um, <laughs> she's like, I meant Croatia. <laughs> um, so, all right. Let's get the Aaron Cressida Wilson stuff out of the way. Because this is weirdly our third movie that is written um, by Aaron Cressida Wilson. She, based on the movies that we have covered that she has written... Um, and she's a real. It's it's fun. It's interesting that she gets keep. You know, she's got a whole bunch of movies like on the way, which is funny to me because her last two and they're like Disney movies. <laughs> her last two screenplay credits, well, Disney movies, and then also the Indecent Proposal remake, um, which is never going to happen. I mean, I feel like Indecent Proposal is a movie that is frozen in time and probably should stay there, but like should be revisited constantly like we should never ever forget the era of indecent proposal because as we've talked about i'm sure i've talked about this on this podcast before just what a wild ass movie that was i think part of the appeal of indecent proposal is that by today's standards you're just like he only offers them a million dollars and i'm just like exactly that's what's amazing about it is you go back now and it's just like for one million dollars which is like that's not a lot of money but you're like but it's life-changing money but it's not fuck you money right exactly yeah yes so it's part of the appeal of just like the what would you do anyway her last two screenplay credits uh major screenplay credits at least uh as i'm looking at her on uh wikipedia are movies that we have covered and not in a complimentary fashion we she did uh the script for men women and children i want to see if these were solo screenplay credits or not men women and children she is credited along with jason reitman for that screenplay and then the girl on the train uh she is the lone screenplay credit on that based on the the novel obviously but um not good movies this is definitely without question the best movie of hers that we've done definitely not the last movie of hers that we will do you're you're guaranteeing the listeners that we're going to do fur an imaginary portrait of dion arbus we've talked about fur for a long time no we do have to nor have i wow all right another one another first time refresh she also i should mention um the Adam Agoyan movie Chloe, 
the sex thriller with Julianne Moore and Liam Neeson and Amanda Seyfried. Uh, the levels of which that is the ultimate. That movie is, is such. Is it good or do I just trash. want people? Like, is it good or did I just enjoy watching it and want other people? Oh, to also it is watch enjoyable it? trash, but it is soggy. It's trash. Yes, <laughs> wet trash bag so- condensation of a We've, movie. <laughs> I've said on this podcast before that when I uh, win the lottery and do my dream of opening a movie theater that I operate as a loss for the rest of my life, um, I will be co-programming Chloe and Greta together um, forever. Like, there will be just one screen that just, like, every day shows a a double feature of Chloe and then Greta. I actually think the movies you should program together are Chloe and Brian De Palma's Passion. Please tell me you've seen it. Uh, yes. That movie is... The three of them. The three of them together. Because they're all one-word titles. I liked that. I like the idea that Chloe and Greta are both one-word one-word titles that are women's names. But and yes, they we'll should exist in the same world. world. Like yes. it's the same. Yes, it's the same Vancouver. Even though, <laughs> even though Greta is like Vancouver as New York. Wait, what if when I open a movie theater, it's like four screens, and one room is the Vancouver room, and one room is the uh, Toronto room? You know what I mean? Just like, and it's just, and that's that's what gets played in there is, and it's like, and inside you sort of have like Vancouver, Coutramont, and whatever, and then and, you have an Atlanta that's like you know Marvel movies and right, right, you know, exactly. So that we can you know make money. Uh, and then one is just like Los Angeles as a character, and it's just like okay, all right, fine. <laughs> People love Los Angeles as a character. That's fine. Um, but so yeah, this this film is based off of a short story. So again, this is not sort of something uh, an original uh, Aaron Cressida Wilson, but like there is a the the kind of connective tissue between secretary and Chloe. And we can't really speak to fur because we haven't seen it, but we, what we do know of fur is that there is this like unusual sexual attraction, right? Whereas Nicole Kidman, I thought there was uh, like weird sex scenes in that movie. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's just like, he's like Robert Downey Jr. Is, you know, covered in fur and she's attracted to that. And so, yeah, like I think there is the early part of her career is very sort of like quirky sex movie thing and then she just in these last couple with men women and children girl on the train that kind of goes away and in place of it is badness i like like, i feel like what's the what's the through line between those two movies except it's just like they're just bad so yeah what does she have coming up i want to see she's got something uh like i said the the forever in production Indecent Proposal. Um, Who do you want cast in an Indecent Proposal remake? Well, I need I to actually see the original. I can't give, like, I, I'm pretty sure uh, this is not my original idea that I'm sort of glomming on. I think my friend Slade Somer told this to me, and and it's been embedded in my head for years, that, like, an Indecent Proposal remake should be a, a gay remake. And that's the sort of intrigue of it is that it's is that like it's everyone's gay men. or it's just like you and a heterosexual couple will have sex with me get straight man that is one angle to it or it's just a full out like i guess it's two different very different movies right if it's a 
gay man with money who wants to uh, pay a woman a million dollars to let him sleep with her. I can't wait for the take cycle. Exactly. It would burn the take cycle down. And in that way, I would be living. But there's also the version of it where it's, uh, you know, older gay man and a younger gay couple. But I think that movie just ends with a threesome and it's a 30 minute short because it's just like, <laughs> it's just like bingo, bango. It's just like, yes, we will take that money and we will both have sex with you. And what I think that the, the conflict in a gay indecent proposal would be is the, the guy offers the couple a million dollars to have sex with uh, just one of you. And the conflict then is the two of them spend the entire movie getting resentful of each other over why it right. can't be the both of them and which one is it going to be. And then and that's your that's your conflict. Again, can't wait for the take cycle. I feel exactly. like maybe indecent uh, like indecent proposal remake is just like gender swapped, right? Like Yes. Oh yes. I, I'm pretty sure that is the when they announced the idea of a remake that it would be gender swapped. Which like I that feel like me, that is basically just forgotten Renee Zellweger television vehicle. What if? Yes. 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 <laughs> but and, she was uh, stellar on that show. So. Yes. I think, again, this is why I think Indecent Proposal ultimately shouldn't be remade. Because I think the sexual politics of it are so in the 90s. And, and putting it into the 2020s. Even with a heterosexual indecent proposal, it is just the solution is just we'll just have a threesome and this movie's over. Like this is that's just the end of it. And I think there is a Or it's there, like, you know, having an open marriage is not the most threatening. Right. This is what I mean. Sort of the taboos of the early nineties right. are what make this, that movie. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Um let's not get too far down the line before we get, let's let's have our Maggie Gyllenhaal talk. She's so good in this movie. Like, it's one of the more like incredibly well deserved breakthrough performances where it's just like, yeah, well, obviously, like, obviously, this made her into, you know, something. And I'm trying to think of like where she was at this point because like she had done, she had been in some movies. Cecil B. Demented. Right. Which um, is actually a more prominent role than I'd expected when I watched that movie this year. Well, um, and the story of her and and Jake obviously is their parents are writer filmmaker uh, right their their mother's a screenwriter and their father was a director I believe was the uh, parentage of them Naomi uh, uh, Foner Gyllenhaal and Stephen Gyllenhaal Stephen Gyllenhaal directed among other things that movie A Dangerous Woman with uh, Deborah yes. Winger um, which actually one of Jake them did is- losing Isaiah right. He did, I'm pretty sure. And I wonder if, um, yeah, and Naomi uh, did, the, was, did the screenplay for that. So it was a very sort of like Charles Shire, Nancy Myers uh, division of duties. Yes, yes, yes. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, yeah, Losing Isaiah, a movie that we could probably do. I am, it's one of those things where I don't remember specific Oscar buzz, but like probably it did. I totally um, watched that movie as a child. My what a weird movie to watch wild. as a child. <laughs> I mean, especially like melodramas and stuff. I'm like, I probably sure. shouldn't have watched that movie, but my parents sure. were watching it and I watched it too. Right. Uh, Maggie also, by the way, appears in A Dangerous Woman. So both Maggie and Jake are in that movie. You're right. Cecil B. Demented comes in 2000. She uh, has a role in that. That's a John Waters movie. And then Donnie Darko becomes a this cult 
hit for her brother, for Jake. Yeah, I feel like listeners are like, she was in Donnie Darko the year before, and people forget that Donnie Darko took time to take on. Was a, It was like, a slow And also, and like, she plays his sister in Donnie Darko, but mostly, and she's actually really good, that one scene in the at the dinner table where they're, uh, they're sort of snipping and fighting in a very sort of teenager I'm way. I'm voting for Dukakis. Um, that's an amazing line. And also how exactly does one suck a fuck, uh, uh, <laughs> is also a great line uh, from that scene. Um, but she's mostly, I think when Donnie Darko becomes what it becomes, she's kind of an item on the things you may not have known about Donnie Darko. And it's like this plot thing, this plot thing, this plot thing. Also like the girl who plays Donnie's sister is Jake Gyllenhaal's real life sister. That same year in 2001, she was in a movie we have covered on this when we had um, uh, the illustrious Bowen Yang as our guest, uh, Riding in Cars with Boys. She is Great the, movie. Uh, she's Brittany Murphy's grown-up daughter who ends up in a relationship with Drew Barrymore's grown-up son. And so she's sort of in the outskirts of that. And then, so she was like, Secretary broke her through, like at Sundance in very early 2002. Like, so Donnie Darko, right, had not, become the phenomenon that had become yet it had released very quietly in fall of 2001 and riding in cars with boys was a disappointment so secretary was definitely the thing that broke her out and she also then in 2002 which i i think the other movies that she's in in 2002 like contributed to like a lot of the critics prizes that she's getting even though they're not combined together but it's just like the feeling of an actor having a moment you know? Right. They weren't awarding her for being in 40 Days and 40 Nights. The uh, the Josh Hartnett um, can't have sex. Cut the poster for 40 Days and 40 Nights is so cheap. We're dancing so around so much Shannon Sossaman talk. <laughs> That's a good point. How can we bring nights. up Shannon Sossaman in every episode moving forward? We Wait, gotta... the plot? I don't even know who Maggie even plays in that Shannon movie. Shannon Sossman is the lead love interest of 40 Days, 40 Nights, yes, right? Yes, she is. No, you're absolutely right. But the plot of that movie is that uh, Josh Hartnett, through, like, reasons, what weird rom-com reasons, uh, makes a vow that he's not going to have sex or, uh, or jerk off for the 40 Days of Lent. And so the poster of this movie is <laughs> the Josh original Hartnett. No Nut November. <laughs> Basi- yes, exactly. That's exactly exactly what it is. Uh, November plus. Um, he's lying on his back, like uh, at the bottom of the poster, like hands behind his head, sort of like in recline, looking up. And the title of the movie and the credit block are in one sort of like slender, uh, like skyscraper uh, formation going right up from his crotch. So it's literally just like the title and the credit block are this giant boner of his on the on the poster. It's so juvenile, charming. And I hate I hate how much it makes me laugh every time I see it because uh, um, it's so dumb. She's also in adaptation, which is the best of the movies that she's in in two thousand two. Uh, she's playing Donald Kaufman's um girlfriend in that one and she's sort of very much on board i feel like as i recall i haven't seen adaptation in a while but she's like very basically playing finger quotes maggie gyllenhaal in that like she is like doesn't she play like an actress she plays an actress she has like an actual like character she's not like some people in that movie do play themselves right doesn't katherine keener play herself in that movie quite possibly it's been a while since i've seen it but i do love that movie yeah um I just remember her from the scene where he's explaining the plot of his movie about um, 
how there's a there's a car chase with somebody on horseback and uh like technology versus horse um <laughs> what a great movie and then she's also in uh another charlie kaufman scripted movie she's in confessions of a dangerous mind although as with everybody in that movie like it's sam rockwell like george clooney plays the like the whatever the cia guy and then everybody else is some degree of like cameo plus in that movie where like sure. Julia roberts shows up and she's got a role for like a second i guess drew barrymore as his love interest um is julia also... roberts is also a love interest but she's like the spy against him and i think he has to kill her i really got to see that movie again it, it, it is having a anniversary year this year maybe i should watch it and and make the case which feels more and more maybe true that confessions of a dangerous mind is the best george clooney directed movie I think that's probably going to be true. I mean, Good Night and Good Luck is a solid movie. Like, that is, I think, just because it's such a meat and potatoes Oscar player that I think maybe we underrate it a little bit. But, like, certainly those are the two good George Clooney movies. Good Night and Good Luck is a movie that, like, when it comes up in conversation, I always ask myself, what is the narrative arc of that movie? And truly, for the life of me, I cannot remember. I mean, yes. I just remember that as like kind of a vibes movie. It is. Like, I mean, it captures a certain tone and mood. There's plot with McCarthy. McCarthy's going after right. you know. Uh, uh, what the hell? What the hell is the the guy's name? Edward R. Murrow. Edward R. Murrow. Thank you. And um, um, of course, it's all basically about our George W. Bush outrage. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Um. But yeah, that movie I maybe owe a rewatch as well. This this episode is giving me a lot of things from early 2000s that I want to rewatch again. But so the thing that I want to talk about about Maggie Gyllenhaal that's so interesting is she has this incredible breakthrough year, like actresses like Jessica Chastain, let's say, have had, or Julianne Moore had in the late 90s. And those actresses go on from those to sort of ever-increasing, higher-profile, major roles, lead roles... Oscar nominations, whatever. And Maggie Gyllenhaal's career does not really go that way. She stays in a kind of middle range of indies. Every once in a while, she'll get a lead in an indie like Sherry Baby, where she gets a Golden Globe nomination for. Or a Mona um, Lisa Smile or a World Trade Center. Well, and in, but those are, I think, kind of different things. Where like Mona Lisa Smile, it's a bigger movie, but she's like fourth lead. And World Trade Center, it's a. I had ambitions to be a bigger movie and she's, you know, love interest. She's Michael Pena's aggrieved wife. wife. Yes. 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 Um, she's the love interest in stranger than fiction. She, I think the she gets sort blown of, up in the dark night. Well, right. That's the thing is like the dark night. She replaces Katie Holmes and like the dark night is like the most high profile. If you've like, that's the movie that your regular person, if you show them a photo of Maggie Gyllenhaal, that's the movie they'll recognize her from. But she ends up excelling in these sort of smaller movies like Sherry Baby. She's so good in Happy Endings, which kind of nobody besides our weird little like circle of gay Oscar folk like watched, actually. She's um, great in that movie. She sings she's, multiple Billy Joel songs. That's the very thing. Well. If you want to see Maggie Gyllenhaal singing multiple Billy Joel songs, run Don't Walk to Happy Endings. Also, you'll get to see Jesse Bradford in his underwear. It's a whole time. So, and um, a really good Lisa Kudrow. Then 2009, the same year, by the way, that she is 
maybe my f- I have a lot of favorite supporting performances in Away We Go, but she is a fucking scream in Away We Go, playing this like college professor hippie mom refuses to use a stroller you know and practices i feel like i'm pushing him away (laughs) and she she becomes this like complete monster through just like the course of 10 minutes of film like she's not in that movie very much but she makes such an impression she's so funny um that's the same year she's in crazy heart and gets this incredibly improbable i would say oscar nomination that kind of came out of nowhere and then it kind of did but like it is while that is an oscar nomination that is incredibly like because it's the only one she has it's just like well that's a bummer like she deserves better than a nomination for this well this is but she campaigned very specifically because that was a late breaking movie and it was always seen as a jeff bridges play but like in the window where oscar voting was actually happening is when she really hit the pavement of like doing q a's doing interviews doing uh you know the parties that are fyc parties but we're not allowed to say that it's an fyc party right right and then again though she you know pivots off of the oscar nomination there and you would think well thankless role weird you know that this is her oscar oscar nomination but she got it so what is that going to do for her career and the answer to that is not really much. She still basically has the same career that she had before that. She stars opposite Viola Davis in Woke Back Down in a movie that I find to be fine, but like it really got like it really stepped into the charter schools versus teachers unions. Kind yeah, of debate. people who like basically called that movie propaganda. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Like it, it really got slammed for its you know, advocating charter schools and your, you know, your anti-teachers and whatever. And it's just like, y'all, it's just a movie. It's just a, you know, but I, I, before that happened. It's just a movie that no one saw. (laughs) That's the other thing is like, nobody saw that movie. Except for me, I did, I remember see that in the theater. Uh, So I guess I was part of the problem there. Sorry, teachers. Um, and then it's just like she's, you know, thankless role in in White House Down. A good movie, but like, you know. Actually, I don't know about thankless. I think she has she's got a couple moments in that one. She's one of those ones where it's just like Does why she is get to Maggie hit a guy? Gyllenhaal? Yeah, I think she's doesn't she get like revealed? If Maggie being... Gyllenhaal punches a guy, I will finally watch this movie. That'll be the thing to get me to watch it. Where when you talk about her like post Oscar nomination roles, two that jump out to me, and I don't know if if they're the same for you, because I don't know if you've necessarily seen both of these the television miniseries the honorable woman where she's up to it frick she rules it's my favorite thing she's ever done as an actress she's so incredibly good in it she's um it capitalizes on one kind of attribute of hers that's really good where she has this like instant gravitas to her where she can really she commands i think that uh, plays into a lot of why she makes a ton of sense as a director is it's so funny to me that people would be like weird maggie gyllenhaal's directing movies just like no that makes total sense to me yeah i've always thought that made sense so much of her screen presence is this kind of just like absolute instant gravitas she's um a a baroness in uh in london and gets caught up in all of this kind of international intrigue it's an incredible miniseries i'm pretty sure it was bbc america but you can find it it's on hbo max now because i've been meaning to watch it but whoops has the time and then um 
speaking of Sundance, then she has another uh, Sundance hit in 2018 with the kindergarten teacher, which capitalizes, I think, on the other more like secretary side of 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 Megan Gyllenhaal, which is a woman who is way weirder than you would think she would be on the surface. And um, in the kindergarten teacher, it's dealt with in this very sort of like empathetic way. She projects a lot onto this gifted kid who, and then she just sort of like, she takes it too far. She ends up, you know, abducting this child because she, she sort of mentally, becomes obsessed with this idea of this kid as basically her sort of, you know, salvation. And Mm -hmm. she's super unsettling, but like really, really fantastic. She's fantastic in that movie. That movie was like the C tier for Netflix's awards play that year. So like that thing got buried. Yes. 2018. Was that also the year they buried, um, uh, the Catherine Hahn, uh, Tamara Jenkins movie. Yes, and that was even like their B tier of stuff. Private Life or Private Lives? Private Life, right? Private Life. Yeah. Um, this is also was... when Maggie Gyllenhaal is doing The Deuce, which right, I, which I have not seen. I haven't finished because like nobody was excited about that show. But like, if there's anything to be excited about on The Deuce, Maggie Gyllenhaal rules i feel like the deuce got a little bit of a of of a group of support for i think there was a while there where people were like you're missing out people were (laughs) the line was like look i know why you're not watching the deuce right but maybe you're missing out on a great maggie performance yes exactly exactly and then she did a bunch of in all of this time she did a bunch of uh, theater stuff she was on I believe that production of The Real Thing was on Broadway, right, uh, in 2014? Um, Does not ring a bell, but possible. I'm pretty sure. Uh, let me see. 2014 production. Yeah. Uh, Ewan McGregor, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Josh Hamilton, who played her husband uh, in Away We Go, and uh, uh, Cynthia Nixon in The Real oh. Thing. Which I've never seen. I've never seen any... any, um, Cynthia Nixon, who was in the original production when she was a teenager. Yes, yes. Um, It's a Tom Stoppard play. I have not seen it, but it is um, pretty well regarded, I feel like, among his stuff particularly. Uh, She was in... Obviously, she was in A Three Sisters, because like it feels like destined by the universe that Maggie Gyllenhaal would have performed <laughs> in uh, in a Three Sisters uh, production. Ditto with, she was in an Uncle Vanya. Um, both of these are classic stage company. And, oh, one of the things we should have said at the very beginning, because before Secretary, before Donnie Darko, she was in a production of Closer, playing um the the role that Alice Mary Portman ends up playing in the movie Alice yes uh, opposite Rebecca De Mornay as Anna in oh, this wow. was in this was it Berkeley Rep um uh, in two thousand so yeah Maggie Gyllenhaal Rebecca De Mornay this does not say here who played the male roles but like imagine being able to say that in two you know that it, it just this random production of Closer in two thousand that you saw Maggie Gyllenhaal and Rebecca De Mornay that's pretty rad. This is how I am now increasingly able to brag on the fact that I saw Bring It On the Musical on Broadway, which starred <laughs> with Ariana DeBose, Ariana DeBose, and Adrian Warren. 
and oh, I'm just like that's that's that get that brag gets better and better every year. I said if we can get uh, Taylor Lauderman to come back to Evil and get an Emmy uh, for that role as the social media influencer on Evil, I was like it'll be a real triple crown if we could get you know uh, uh, more and more more and more alums of Bring It On the Musical should be able to reap awards and let me brag on them a little bit more. So yeah, her Ma- Maggie Gyllenhaal's career is. I think I don't know if I like a Maggie Gyllenhaal career that get, that goes bigger than what it has been. Well, going bigger you know for I mean? her is directing now. And that's what I mean. I'm glad that I that's think the direction her that it career went. is going to become even more fascinating. Um, especially if she's making movies like The Lost Daughter. Like I'm, it, it was the type of debut movie that I'm incredibly excited to see whatever the next thing is because it could conceivably be anything anything we would actually want to see because it's not like Maggie Gyllenhaal is going to go and make a Marvel movie. No, like Maggie Gyllenhaal breakthrough directors, like Maggie Gyllenhaal is going to keep like making a movie out of like the novel that she read last year that fascinated her. And that's what I want. Yes, that works. That works for me. So 2002 though, her performance in Secretary is like again super lauded. Comes out of Sundance. It's not the Sundance sensation, but it was highly regarded. And so it got ends an up... originality prize when they still gave those out. I love that, by the way, the Sundance originality prize. Um, I mean, like, is this movie all that original though? Even for two thousand, I would say maybe that's not the word you're looking for. But I understand the sentiment that you are trying to achieve it's more like an audacity prize probably i think that's probably right because it's Um, not the audacity of like the sex that's on screen but that it's ultimately you know one that is very tender in this type of thing that's actually ultimately a very sweet movie um it's the kind of thing that like i know i believe the Spirit Awards do this, and I also think the NBR does this as well, this sort of, like, Freedom of Expression Award, which right. is just essentially, like, a film about a subject matter that we think is kind of outrageous, right? Well, like, a National Board of U- Review is now basically, like, the other documentary we didn't give a prize to. Right, right. Did NBR give anything to The Lost Daughter this year? Uh, I would believe that they did, but let me look that up. It's got to be in their, like, top ten. I would imagine so. All right, let's see. Lost Daughter does not show up on NBR's uh, page at all. Which is wild. Oh, right, because Netflix didn't do very well with them. Mm, Yeah. Although Don't Look Up did end up on their top ten list. Unwell. Super weird. Still haven't seen it. I can't say. I can't say for sure. But I, will. I cannot say that I think you will like it. <laughs> Everything that I've seen where people are just like, it's so long and it's so unbearable and it's so smug, and I'm just. Like, I kind yeah. of feel like it's actually going to make you angry. I mean, I bet it will. Um, if nothing else, to waste a big starry ensemble like that is gonna uh, is gonna piss me off. I will say Jennifer case. Lawrence has a recurring joke that worked for me. I mean, you know I want Jennifer Lawrence to be back to be back on top. I don't know why this was the movie. And now all of a sudden somebody said uh on Twitter recently it was just like is Adam McKay just going to become the new David O Russell for Jennifer Lawrence and I'm like maybe that wouldn't uh, be so what great. Maybe maybe she can 
I don't know. Again, Maggie Gyllenhaal should be the new David O. Russell for Jennifer Lawrence. I would watch that movie. I would absolutely watch that movie. All right. So let's talk about specifically, though, the 2002 Best Actress race. Because, we again, she's super acclaimed for Secretary. It's the kind Definitely of role... Definitely seventh place. I was going to say, this is the one of those years where we always talk about what years would we want to see the vote totals and whatnot. This year, I don't think there's any doubt how the vote totals went. Other The five nominees in Best Actress in 2002 end up being Nicole Kidman in The Hours, Julianne Moore in Far From Heaven, Salma Hayek in Frida, Diane Lane in Unfaithful, and Renee Zellweger in Chicago. Kidman ends up winning the Oscar after it seemed for a little bit like Julianne... Well, the critics' prizes... So let's sort of like go chronological. Early in the season, it felt like it was Julianne Moore. And then as like it was getting... After the Oscar nominations happened and like Far From Heaven was a movie that like, you know... It was clear the divide between the way the Academy liked that movie and the way critics liked that movie felt yes. like Julianne Moore was not going to win for that. Also, um, during the critics awards phase, I think everybody kind of expected Julianne Moore was going to sweep. And who ends up winning New York Film Critics and National Society of Film Critics is Diane Lane, yes. which I think then sort of maybe like puts a little bit of a dent into Julianne Moore's inevitability. And then the fact that I But also seals that nomination for Diane Lane as well. Well, and that was a thing that I remember being among Oscar Oscar prognosticators that year. And that was a big point of contention because a lot of people were like, you're lying to yourselves about Diane Lane. She was an early season. Her her movie was early in the season. It has no other Oscar tendrils to it. Like, Unfaithful was not being campaigned in any other categories. It's... Uh, you know, that's Adrian... also the type of nomination that I think people always underestimate. That it's like this is somebody who has worked with everyone I in was... the industry, I and they are going agree. to get voted for. That's like that's... an Octavia Spencer. Yep. It's a Damien Bashir. Um, who is people... it this year that people are like, I don't know about that person. I'm like, they've worked with everybody. They're getting nominated, oh, and I it's like know. they're. Mo- Why am I blanking on this? But there is somebody like that this year. Yeah. All right, wait. We're gonna. I'll mention if it if it comes back to me. I think I think it will. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think people underestimate just how thrilled people were at the time that Diane Lane finally got this role that really let her shine and let her get all this great respect. And so, she and Julianne Moore are sort of sharing the critical adulation. Nicole Kidman in the hours, sort of, somewhat quickly once people saw that movie kind of rose to the top of the heap in terms of uh in terms of what was going to get nominated for that movie because there was a while there where people thought she might be contending and supporting mm-hmm. and ultimately because of I think largely because of the fact that Julianne Moore had a lead campaign for another movie the decision was made to campaign Julianne Moore uh in supporting for the hours and then campaign Nicole and Merrill in lead for uh for that movie and a lot of people thought that they would both get nominated and that either Salma Hayek or Diane Lane would sort of fall by the wayside because once Chicago became the front runner Renee was sort of you know solid gold for a nomination for that well and when she won SAG too, it yes. Oh, by that time, for in terms sure. of the win, by um, that time it was like definite. And but go ahead. 
the weird, like, uh, I don't even know what the, like, Venn diagram of, like, how, because Julianne Moore had two, but Meryl also had two that season. Um, and, like, From the where? way that that all played into who was campaigning. Oh, two movies. Yes, sorry. I right. thought you were talking about critics' prizes. Yes, two oh, movies. Oh, no, no, yes. no, no, no. The way that that played into who was campaigned in each category who eventually got certain nominations and who it benefited ultimately i think in the win because like you could just like throw all those dice in another cup shake it up and it would roll out a different way right there's Um, a way you view adaptation where meryl is a co-lead in adaptation there is a way that you could fudge any one of the hours women into supporting even though i strongly of the opinion that they're all leads and this is this is partly why like category confusion conversations drive me crazy is like people want to act like it's so horrible now when it's like i remember people going off and like counting the amount of screen time that each one have and people being outlandish because nicole kidman has like clearly the least screen time of the three and like it's just like calm down it's so funny that you that you hate the conversation for that reason why i love the conversation for that reason because i do feel like you can go back into any year and you can well that was when it was more fun like now it's not fun and it's just the most annoying conversation i have fun when i when i'm talking about it it's fun so Mm -hmm. um (laughs) when i talk about it it's okay when i do it it's good um (laughs) uh but so i think meryl in the hours ends up being odd man out for a lot of reasons a probably sixth place oh not even probably like definitely sixth place i we've talked about this ad nauseum i think she's gives the best performance in the hours i don't think that's a slight on anybody else it's my favorite meryl street performance of all time um it's a bummer that she got left out but like she still got the adaptation nomination and supporting so like it was fine i'm sure she was fine um nicole ends up winning the oscar but like yes i think meryl is absolutely in sixth place and those six were that was that was the field for from like the fall onward and so as we said maggie gyllenhaal isabel huppert and like kind of that was it hanging around i would even say with those with the like critical recognition isabel huppert was probably 20th place like First of all, distribution for that movie, it would have come out stateside in, like, January or February of O2. But, like, also, you paired this movie up, you pair the piano teacher up with Secretary, and it's like, yeah, by comparison, of course, Secretary is going to get a little bit more... Here's uh, here's what I will uh, say, Embraced, though. because it's the sweeter movie, but also, like, the piano teacher had no distribution. Like, here's what I will say, though. Um, I think by the time you get to talking about who was seventh or eighth in the balloting, you're talking about pockets of fervor within a you know a a larger group that that's too big for that pocket to make a difference. But I think the fact that uh, Huppert was runner up to Julianne Moore at Los Angeles Film Critics, which Los Angeles Film Critics are the one critical organization that there's no overlap with Oscar voting, but there is a little bit of the waters that they are sampling from 
are adjacent to the waters that the academy you know what i mean like the the conversation that goes on in los angeles and the enthusiasms that happen in los angeles around oscar time are more I, yeah i mean like i understand indicative. what you're saying but like you know y- you know how i feel about her as a performer you know how i feel about that performance and that movie but like even so like I mean, like probably Catherine Zeta-Jones got more Best Actress bids than she did. Like That's this whole possible. like, I I think probably like there's at least one person in that sixth to tenth place of these performances we've talked about that could have been put well, in either. That like let's play a little Julianne bit of it. More probably was there. Let's play a little bit of a game then. Okay, and I'm just okay. gonna run down the list. So you say Catherine Zeta-Jones in Chicago, who ends up winning supporting. You're saying she probably got more uh, votes for Best Actress than Isabelle Huppert. Yes. Uh, Golden Globe nominee in musical or comedy, Goldie Hawn for the Banger Sisters. Do you think she got more votes than Isabelle Huppert? Possibly. But, like, that was a forgotten movie at that point? It was. Uh, Nia Vardalos, also a Golden Globe nominee for My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Do you think she got more nominee, not got more votes than Isabelle Huppert? Yes. Uh, Kate Blanchett for the Tom Tickver movie Heaven, which was sort of uh, on long lists of predicted nominees early in that season, and then nobody saw that movie. Uh, but she did shave her head for it. So do you think <laughs> she got more votes than Isabella Pear? No. Uh, Sigourney Weaver in the post-9-11 movie The Guys. Do you think she got more votes than Isabella Pear? No, because if nobody saw Heaven, nobody saw The Guys. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jennifer Aniston in The Good Girl, who got a little bit of a chatter for a while. Definitely and... got more votes than Isabella Pear. I would say she was probably eighth or ninth. All right. So you're putting if not Isabelle... one of these people that could have been lead or supporting. So you've got Isabella in around 10th, 11th, 12th place, let's say. Yeah, probably lower. I mean, there's got to be other things, but like, I just don't think that the Academy votes for that movie. They just, it's I mean, too much. You're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong in that account. But I would just say that she was. And they weren't ready to embrace Huppert either. When we're talking about the conversation, she was the one who was showing up as like runner up at major critics awards. And, and I mean, she won in Cannes and like had a moment from right. that, but like right. a year, almost like two years after. Uh, uh, two years from when the nom- or a year and a half from when the nominations happened. So, Understood. Like, it, Understood. But I'm just saying that, like, she was. I think this she is one of the cases sort of... where I'm willing to like stamp my foot down and say, "No, the Academy is not that cool." Listen, Chris File, very <laughs> cool. Academy voters, not cool. We have, uh, we've, we've figured it out. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Like the I. I am the Mother Marcos with sunglasses. That's cool. <laughs> um, this movie, four point one million domestic box office for Secretary, is actually not bad for the kind of movie. That's pretty this great because I mean, this is an early Lionsgate movie, which yes, I was also like, I did. I looked back into it and I was like, well, wait, was it also that like Lionsgate really wasn't an Oscar player, and that's not true, like. They'd done Gods and Monsters. They'd had uh, international features nominated. They'd, you know. Yeah. They were. Um, this is when they were edgy before, like, well, pre Hunger this, Games turning this feels, them into basically a major studio. This feels like American Psycho era Lionsgate, right? The yeah. early 2000s. Right. Edgy. Um, 
you know, a little bit daring. And obviously, like, American Psycho doesn't get any Oscar nominations either. Either, But that was also on, you know, certain top ten lists that year. And, um, yeah. What else about this movie? There was a Spirit Award nominee for... Spirit uh, Award winner. Spirit Award winner, right, for screenplay. Let me bring that up. First screenplay. Best first screenplay. I love that. We talked about in our mailbag episode the fact that I would like... Uh, the Oscars to maybe borrow a little bit from the Spirits in terms of a best first feature category. I also like that the Spirits do best first screenplay. That is, again, it's a way of just honoring more movies, and first screenplay is, allows you to honor smaller movies. That's an interesting field. You look at Aaron Cresta Wilson beats out um, Hysterical Blindness, which ends up being an HBO movie. It was the Mira Nair movie with uh Good with movie. Thurman. Um, is Jenna Rollins in that movie, right? Doesn't Jenna yes, Rollins play her it's mother? Yes, Uma, Jenna Rollins, and Juliette Lewis. And Ben Gazzara, also in that yeah. movie. Jenna Rollins and Ben Gazzara. Probably haven't seen it since 2002, but I remember really liking it. Right. It was. It ended up going directly to HBO, but because it had played film festivals, it was eligible for a Spirit Award. Um, Igby Goes Down was a nominee for uh, Burstier's screenplay. Neil Berger, who ended up... Um, uh, doing the the Paul Giamatti movie, The Illusionist, the other magician movie from 2006 that is not The Prestige, uh, got a nomination for his movie Interview with the Assassin. And then the one I probably would have voted for, uh, Heather Jurgensen and Jennifer Westfeldt's screenplay for Kissing Jessica Stein, which I is, probably would have voted for it too. You talk about micro genres that speak directly to me. We've talked about this a little bit before, but like the Jennifer Westfeldt, um, New York City indie rom-com genre is like that's friends it. with money that's um, what i like no um, not friends with friends with kids sorry friends, friends with, with money is hall of center right uh yes friend with friends with kids although uh, uh, jennifer westfeld always feels like uh a sort of parallel universe cousin to Nicole Hall Center in, in certain ways. Um, but yeah, Kissing Jessica Stein, Iron Abbey, Friends with Kids. Uh, we talked about it when we talked about Prime, because I feel like the best version of Prime would have been closer to a Jennifer Westfeld movie than anything else. Um, but I love Kissing Jessica Stein. I should watch it again soon just to get it. Tom like, Feldshoe, sensational. <laughs> uh, uh, also, Jennifer Westfeld's best friend in that movie is played by Jackie Hoffman, which is a yes. fantastic... A very pregnant decision. Jackie Hoffman, if I'm correct. Yes. Um, that is a movie set in New York City before I moved there that always weirdly makes me feel nostalgic for a New York City that I never actually lived in, which is exactly the vibe of those movies um, that I love. What else did... Uh, best, it was a Best Feature nominee at... Um... Right. Indie Spirits, too, which, like... Yeah. Speaking of Nicole Holofcener, all nominated alongside Lovely and Amazing, uh, The Good Girl, Far From Heaven wins. Far From Heaven won a lot at the Spirits Also won uh, Best Female Lead opposite Maggie Gyllenhaal's nomination. Female Lead uh, won Supporting Male, won Director, won Best Feature. Um, yeah, who else was in? Oh, there was also a movie called Tully that is not obviously the Charlize Theron uh, Tully, starring uh, Julianne Nicholson. That was uh, best feature nominee at the, at the Spirits. But yeah, very strong best female lead category that year. Like yes, really incredibly strong. Actually, um, it reminds me that Catherine Keener for Lovely and Amazing was also on the outer, outer, outer outskirts of that best actress conversation. Like Catherine Keener definitely got more votes than Upair. 
Okay. <laughs> um, Julianne Moore, as we said, won that for Far From Heaven. Maggie Gyllenhaal for Secretary nominated. Catherine Keener for Lovely and Amazing. Jennifer Aniston, of course, for The Good Girl. I feel like that was the apex of her um, awards campaign that year was this nomination. Because she didn't get a Globe nomination in musical or comedy. Interesting. I think they pushed it as a drama. I mean, it's probably the right call to do that, but also the drama was pretty, pretty stacked that year. That was, that was, you had, you know, Kidman and Streep in the hours. Frida is there. Diane Lane is there. Like it's, we didn't talk about uh, Salma probably because when we've talked about this actress race, we've talked about her before. I feel like, yeah, she campaigned really, really hard, very hard. And probably was not even fifth place in the final voting. I would say that's probably Diane Lane. Yes. Uh, I think that's probably right. No, she put that movie on her back and and hit the road with it. And was probably responsible for not only her nomination, but for the wins that it ended Everyone up getting. Else's. Like that's that is that's a that's your Frida that's your uh, Salma Hayek uh, Oscar right there. Uh fifth nominee that year at the Spirits was Parker Posey for the Rebecca Miller movie Personal Velocity. Personal Velocity colon three portraits, where again Good poster of this movie is her it's Feruza balk right uh-huh and kira and sedgwick kira sedgwick thank you i was trying to picture it in my head of just like who are the three women on this okay um what else did secretary get at that spirits just those three just those three oh, okay so not bad not a bad showing for that anything else we want to say about secretary before we sort of move into the imdb game Secretary is an MTV Movie Award nominee. Give it to me. Maggie was nominated for Breakthrough Female Performance. I'm going to give you the rest of these nominees because it's like, you know, this lineup of six women, uh, they're my inside-out emotions. They are the six (laughs) portraits of my brain. They are, um, okay, so Maggie Gyllenhaal and Secretary. Nia Vardalos for My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which you would not think MTV would go for, but I... Very happy that they did. Yeah. Kate Bosworth in Blue Crush. Wow. I'm going to qualify what I just said. Kate Bosworth is not a, a you know, quadrant <laughs> of my brain, but Kate Bosworth in Blue Crush. I was going to say, girl surfer movie. Like, I could see that as a quadrant. Absolutely. Yeah. Eve in Barbershop. Wow. Amazing. Beyonce in Goldmember. Uh-huh. And the winner, this feels, this feels, I think, unfair. But, I mean, she's nominated against uh, singers, so I guess it counts. Uh, it's Jennifer Garner for Daredevil. That was a big... MTV was big, big into Daredevil that year. The thing about that is, like, but she'd had Alias. Oh, but I think I think they... I mean, in defining it specifically as breakthrough into a movie career. I guess. Which, like, I mean... But it's like, that's it's also... still acting. Sure, I guess, but I mean that's also how you get Beyonce and and Eve. But yeah, um, but that's singing. Sure, I'm just saying. I'm. I know. I'm, I, I'm being a, a little petulant this, here, but you are. Um, anyway, what a cool uh lineup. It's a cool secretary. Lineup. I definitely liked it more than you, but I think talking about it. I think maybe what I was most taken with is the performance, but like the movie itself hinges so much on the performance. I think yes, it like the tone of it is captured in her performance. This like darkly comedic 
actual like psychological darkness plus like the like ten ultimately tender aspects of it of that like these are two characters who don't you know understand how to communicate and don't receive what they need from the outside world yeah find each other on the same wavelength and it's like ultimately (laughs) wholesome and you know whatever but it is maybe just more the two performances than the movie it's a very dated movie like dated in a way that's still watchable but you're like oh yeah this is from 20 years ago yeah this this shocked people 20 years ago in a way that i don't think it would nowadays but yeah no we're literally i'm watching the movie and i'm thinking of just like you know what i liked this better in is that netflix movie or that netflix show bonding with uh uh ah. with brendan Scannell, which is like bonding won't crack my like top 35 comedies of you know the year but there's also 8 billion TV shows. And um, I liked it maybe better in this uh, kind of twisted European movie called Dogs Don't Wear Pants that I watched at TIFF one year. Oh. That's like actual BDSM with, you know, a dominatrix and such. And it's also like kind of a dark comedy. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Um, I shouldn't be so backhanded about Bonding. Bonding is actually a really good little comedy. Um, it's just very No one small. watched it. It's small and no one watched it and and I really liked it. Anyway, um do you want to do the IMDb game? Yeah, guys, we end every episode with the IMDb game where we challenge each other to guess the top four titles that IMDb says that an actor or actress is most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Um, And if it takes a really long time... Okay. Gonna bend Joe over this desk and give him a spanking. I again, again. This is why I redacted words earlier. This is why. This is what I was afraid of. It's a vibe now. It's in the room. There's a. There's a. There's a weird vibe in the room now. The vibe in the room is I intentionally wanted to make you uncomfortable. You wanted to throw me off before the IMDb game. So now. I'm I'm off my game. Ugh. All right. Oh, you're not off game. your game. It'll be fine. And you know what? Then why don't I guess first then? Oh, all right. Telling me what to do. Chris just bossing me around in this whole. Uh, you scenario. will. You will give me the. I can't. I can't do it. Wait. We have to paper. talk about very very quickly. Just back up. The scene where she has to call him on the phone and he has to give her permission what to eat. Uh, oh, the peas. The four four individual peas is a great touch. Like that is that's a good piece of business right there. It's so and, and as the, much ice cream as she wanted. And the looks on the rest of her family's face again, undeveloped characters all, but like the sort of looks of horror and disgust as they're like they don't know what her deal is, but like why are you just eating four peas, you weirdo freak? Like that was uh, I enjoyed that anyway. But she's so happy. I'm not saying they were right. I'm just saying that their reactions to it was funny to me. Who do you have for me? Well, we've talked about her actually a few times already on this uh, episode uh, because she was part of the sort of greater Best Actress conversation in 2002. Somehow we've never done her for the IMDb game. And so I'm going to give you Jennifer Aniston. 
Oh, okay. So, <clears throat> well, Jennifer Aniston, I do think, well, how much TV is on there? Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. One television show. Sorry, sorry. It's sorry. Friends. Yes. Okay. If it was the morning show. I kind of expected it to be two television shows and, it, and for the morning show to be one of them. But yes, it is not. Um, is Friends with Money on there? It is not. Then the good girl has to be. Yes, the good girl is. Okay. Friends with Money, as we have decided on our episode about that, our favorite Jennifer Aniston film performance. Absolutely. No question. Yes. So fantastic. Yes. Um, uh, one of her bad comedies, at least, is on there. Um, and I think We're the Millers showed up for something else, so I'm going to say We're the Millers. You are good at this game. Yes, We're the Millers. Okay. Well, there's a lot of comedies like that, though, and I don't think that's the only one, so I'm going to say Horrible Bosses. I would have absolutely guessed Horrible Bosses. It is not Horrible Bosses. Um, So that's your second strike. Your missing year is 2014. Oh, that's cake. <laughs> yes. It's yes, cake. it is. Yes, it I is. I should cake. have guessed cake because there's probably really, a lot of like. I think well, it's wild. The, that cake she is was on nominated this. for a lot of stuff. I'm telling oh, you, like the boy. awards matter and the known for cake showing up over. I'm just gonna like give the list of things that I think over movies that made cake. money. Like Bruce Almighty, Bruce Almighty made a bajillion dollars. Office Space, she is like hugely well known for and has like been around forever. Um, uh, people have forgotten about Office Space. Marley and Me. Um, uh, the breakup even, um, horrible bosses, I'm surprised was not there. (laughs) Mother's Day. I mean, honestly, I, sure. Mother's Day. Um, I mean, Dumplin', my God, Dumplin'. Um. Dumplin'. Who could forget Dumplin'? Who could forget Dumplin'? All right. Uh, hit me with yours. All right. For you, another actress who was definitely not in the best actress conversation, Probably got less votes than Isabelle Huppert. Oh, no. Uh, but she was an MTV Female Breakthrough Performance nominee. For you, I have chosen Kate Bosworth. Oh, I thought you were going to say Nia Vardalos. <laughs> <laughs> no, Nia Vardalos definitely got more right, right, nominations right, right. than Okay. Huppert. Blue Crush is definitely one of Kate Bosworth. Blue Crush is one of them. All right. Well, now the now the, the, the pain starts. All right. Uh, Superman Returns. Superman Returns. Thought that might our, take you a minute to get our there. Our worst Lois Lane. Uh, Altino shade. Okay. Um, Kate Bosworth. Now it starts getting to be how many Kate Bosworth movies can I remember? Because, like, you know what's crowding her out in my brain, and it's not. this is not an answer, uh, is still Alice. <laughs> um i don't you know who we never talk about when we're like you know still alice is great yeah and it has a lot of great performances you know who we never talk about kate bosworth kate bosworth poor kate she's fine in the yeah she's not bad she has a couple of moments she's better than like hunter parish oh i think hunter parish is good in that movie i like hunter parish okay um who plays kate bosworth's husband in still alice is that anybody or is it just some like it's conceivably John Krasinski, guy? but it's not John Krasinski. No, John Krasinski is uh, is husband of is 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 Hunter Parrish's brother-in-law in a different movie. Is uh, is yeah, uh, it's complicated. Um, 
All right, back to Kate Bosworth. I feel like there is definitely... Oh, God. Oh, God. Is it Beyond the Sea? No, not Beyond the oh, Sea. Oh, good. I'm glad for her there. She plays Sandra D opposite at a... It, particularly ghoulish Kevin Spacey, and that is saying something in Beyond the Sea. Um, so is that one strike? Uh, that is one strike. You have two right guesses, one wrong guess, two remaining titles. All right. She had another one around the time of Blue Crush, I think, where it was like youth appealing movie. <laughs> um, uh, oh, was she in that movie with Jessica Alba and Scott Kahn? And they're like, Maybe I'm just thinking of surfing. Maybe I'm I'm getting surfing confused. <laughs> Where there's like a treasure that's into the blue. The She's into not in that. Right. That's what I was. It's because it was also blue. Um. All right. I'm just gonna guess. Still, Alice, and you're gonna give me years. It is not still Alice. You are very correct about that. Though, what if it was? That would be kind of great. That would be kind of um, great. Your years are 2004 and 2008. Ugh. All right. Um. 2008. You've mentioned a co-star that is also in this movie. When I've never I... put two and two that she has been with this actor a billion times. But Spacey? She has. Yes. Oh, no. 2008? 2008. Kind of surprise hit movie. Uh-oh. Well, Casino Jack was 2010. Oh, was it? Is that that card counter movie? Is he in that? Do you have a title for me? Is it 21? 21. Right. God. All right. 2000... I'm pretty sure Spacey's in that. Hold on. Yeah, Spacey's in that movie. All right. Oh, 2004, she is first billed, but you might not guess that based off of the title of the movie. Oh, the title is the name of another person in the movie? Yes. Oh, another character in the movie, obviously. Um, kind of a famously titled after a character movie. The Black Dahlia? No. Not that kind of famous. Like, this is a very goofy title for a movie that has the character's name in it. Oh, so it's not just, like, Vera Drake. It's like, um... <laughs> yes, Kate Bosworth's <laughs> Vera Drake. Uh, so it's like, whatever happened to blue, 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 blah. Um, yes. Oh, for comedy? Yes. Not like Saving Silverman. No, but you're you're on the right level of, of what tier of comedy we're talking oh, about. Oh, it's it's win a date with Tad Hamilton. Win a date with Tad Hamilton. There we go. I got there. All right. That was fun. Honestly, good for Kate Bosworth. She's the really? lead in that movie, huh? She's the one who's winning a date with Tad Hamilton. I guess. I mean, it's Josh Duhamel and Topher Grace. It makes right. sense that she would have been billed higher than them. Josh Duhamel, one of the great um was so hot on a soap opera that they had to give him movie career uh <laughs> stories of of my lifetime like truly he was on all my children and he was just so hot and they were like well we just he's too handsome to keep out of the movies so we're going to give him a movie <laughs> career um and we were all very happy that they did. All right. That is our episode. Thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us. Actually, uh, welcome to 2022. You'll be listening to this one in the new year. So, uh, hey. Yeah. 
Uh, if you want more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris the File. That is F-E-I-L. Yay! I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. Letterboxd uh, as Joe Reed, Reed also spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility, so write down something very nice about us and then dog walk it across the room. Bye-bye! That is all for this week. But we hope we'll be back next week for more buzz. Oh,